So you have some pencils. What do you love oh, yeah. the most? What are your... Well, I brought you some kind of unique ones. This is the one that's made in Pakistan. It's called the Goldfish Autocrat. Um, <laughs> so is this, um, you sell this to Kim Jong-un and other autocrats? Is that a... Th- yes, absolutely. Yeah. Those are our customers. I found out about these because one of the family members of this pencil company who also works there sent me a letter from Pakistan with some beautiful vintage packaging and vintage pencils. And he told me the story of their pencils and told me that he thinks that his grandfather, who founded the company, meant to call it the Goldfish Aristocrat. And something just got lost in translation and it became the Goldfish Autocrat. This tidbit of pencil history is just one, one of the literally thousands of stories and facts about pencils that Caroline Weaver can rattle off. She is a pencil obsessive. And fair warning, I also happen to be a writing implement obsessive myself, so we really got deep into it. This is The Passion Economy. I'm Adam Davidson, and on today's episode, Caroline Weaver and her business, CW Pencil Enterprise, an online store turned New York City boutique offering pencils. Now, on this show, we've discussed some pretty narrow markets, but CW Pencil occupies one so narrow, it's almost impossible to imagine how it exists. Not only are pencils becoming increasingly obsolete in this digital age, I just bought some pencils for my son. You can get a pack of number two Ticonderoga pencils for about two bucks. They are cheap. But Caroline does what is so crucial to passion economy businesses. She adds value with her deep interest and incredible breadth of knowledge about this particular instrument. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to Caroline's childhood. So I grew up in a small town in Southeast Ohio, and my Mother is an interior designer and my father was an engineer. So they both had jobs that required a lot of, I guess, technical work, which means that there were a lot of pencils in our house growing up. And uh, my mother especially is a major office supply nerd. And of course, this was like pre-internet and we had one office supply store in the town. And so she'd take me there and we'd buy things and she was really specific about what she used. And I just kind of absorbed that. And she gifted me a set of Carandash colored pencils when I was a child. And that's my first memory of owning an object that was entirely mine that I just, I, I don't know, just really valued and didn't want to destroy or use to pieces. And I even still have those colored pencils. They're only about half used, even though I've had them for 20 years. But it wasn't until I got older that I realized that this was an object that I really appreciated because it held a lot of nostalgia for me and also functioned the way that I wanted it to function. And it just is an obsession that just kind of grew with age as I learned more and experienced more and traveled more and discovered more things. And one day I just kind of realized like, oh, I guess this is my thing now. Pencils. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you grew up in a small town. You now have a shop on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. How? Tell me about leaving. Were you one of those kids who just always wanted to get out of the small town? Totally. Yeah. I 
I mean, I grew up in a really lovely, really historic small town called Marietta, and it was a beautiful, lovely place, but it's the kind of place that you that would be wonderful to go to for a long weekend, but a really weird place to grow up. And so the plan was always to get out, and the plan was always to come to New York City. Even before I'd been here, I came to New York for the first time when I was 13, and it just reaffirmed this belief that this is where I was supposed to live. And my parents, for being a small-town family, they were really, really good about taking us places and exposing us to things and supporting these dreams we had of getting out. And so I had a deal with them that we were going to stay in the small town that I was to do summer programs. So I had spent some time in New York and in other parts of the country doing summer programs. And I was also given the opportunity to graduate from high school early, which would enable me to get out faster. This was all about just getting out of this small town, clearly. I did not fit in there. I didn't understand it. I didn't want to live there. And then around the time when I was finished, just a couple of days before my 18th birthday, my father committed suicide. I didn't know what to do, and I was done with high school, so I... I guess, did the thing that I feel like people do a lot in books. I ran away to New York City. Is that a good move? Like, I I could see wanting to stay close to family, and I could see wanting to get very far away after a tragedy like that. I mean, in, in retrospect, I think it prolonged my grieving process. I'm not sure that it was the healthiest decision. But yeah, it was weird. Like I came to New York at this place that I'd been fantasizing about living for so long and it just felt weird. I was, it felt like the only place I could feel comfortable and anonymous and I could like kind of grieve and be sad in my own way and nobody would care or bother me. But I also had no friends and I also didn't have a community and- You mean you just showed up at 18? I literally just showed up and- It's a tough city to- Was offered a couple of jobs and lived alone in an apartment in Alphabet City and the really rickety, crooked old apartment that I found on Craigslist. And then I was just, I was kind of miserable. And I just was there because I felt like I couldn't be anywhere else. And then it came time to maybe choose a college or figure that out. And I thought like, all right, like I've gone this far, like why not go further? And so I went to college in London. I went to art school. Which school? I went to Goldsmiths College and did a studio practice degree. It was a strange point in my life, and I didn't know what I was doing, and I chose a degree based on something that I wanted to learn, not necessarily something that would lead to a job, because I didn't know what that job would be. I had no idea what kind of job I wanted, and I knew it was maybe a job that didn't exist. So, and was your art practice, your studio practice, pencil sketches at Goldsmiths in London? No, I I actually did almost nothing that required technical skills, though I did learn some technical skills. I mostly, most of the work I did there was based on these like kind of like pseudo anthropological studies and I guess like visual interpretations of that. So pencils are not a major part of your life at art school. I mean, I, I would think of art school as a, if there's any community where people kind of get into fine pencils, that that would be one of them. When I was in college, it was kind of the joke amongst my classmates that I was the one with all the pencils. And I, on Monday of every week, I started off with a new pencil. And I'd use that pencil until the next Monday, and then I'd put it in. Like, I bought these specifically sized Ziploc bags that were all uniform. And I'd put it in the bag, label the date, and nail it to the wall of my studio. So by the end of the year, there were just, like, hundreds of pencils just 
there, like all the stubs and all the even some full length ones because I just didn't do anything that week. It was for me a kind of way of looking at the wall and understanding how productive I was. And um, would you use the same brand of pencil, the same kind of pencil, or would it be different each week? No, I had maybe like 10 that I liked the most, but some of them were just like souvenir pencils that I got from a museum or something that I picked up while traveling. And it, it told a really unique story about like well, I guess my productivity level and also the places I'd been and like what I was doing. And it was really fun. I did that. And I just kind of became known as the one with all the pencils. I always had one in my ponytail. I just always had my hair in a ponytail. and I'd stick a pencil through and it became like the fun game at the pub after school that like all the people at the pub would try to steal the pencil out of my hair, <laughs> which can be very dangerous with a bunch of drunk young people. But yeah, it just kind of became like this joke thing, honestly, that my dream job would be to have a shop that only sells pencils. This whole like fantasy just started developing to the point where it just felt so real to me. And I moved back to New York after college because, again, there just was no place I felt like I could live. And I got a job just for another retail company just because I needed a job. And in the back of my head was always this idea, this like fantasy dream job that I had developed to the point where like I felt so confident that I could make it happen, apart from the fact that every time I did the math, I didn't understand how I could pay the rent selling single pencils. I know for sure if somehow we met and you asked for advice, my advice would be, don't do this. <laughs> this is, I'm writing a book called The Passion Economy. I host a podcast called The Passion Economy. You have a passion for pencils. And I'm telling you, that is not a retail outlet that only sells pencils is a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe think about all writing instruments. So I, I love it when my imagined predictions are completely wrong. So how do you do the math on that? What was your way of assessing whether or not this would work? Well, I just kind of thought about all the pencils that I knew about and that I liked. I kind of found like the median price per individual pencil, and it's easy to figure out what that would probably cost me wholesale. And then I just basically calculated how many pencils I would have to sell per week to pay the rent depending on what my rent was or how many employees I had. And I mean, the answer to all those questions was thousands of pencils. And yeah, I realized immediately that I, I mean, this vision I had for just like a very accessible, very like democratic pencil shop was going to be really difficult if I didn't also try to like bulk it up with more expensive items that were also desirable. And so. But so are you literally like with a pencil at your day job that you don't like kind of like, okay, what if yep. it was... With an actual calculator. Really? Yep. Yeah. And it still never worked out to make sense. Even until like the day that I opened my shop, it still didn't make sense. Really? But I did it anyway. You did it's it anyway. <laughs> so tell me about how did you go from it doesn't make sense to screw it, I'm doing it. Well, I, um, I had this job I didn't like. It was really horrible and boring and taxing and just exhausting. It was not a fun job. I learned a lot about retail, though. I'm grateful that I had that job because I learned especially about customer service, the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it, and how to how to please people without losing a lot of money, which was a very useful skill to learn. And that first winter in New York, I somehow, this people don't believe me when I tell them this, I somehow contracted Lyme disease, though I did not leave in January 
even though I did not leave Manhattan for the entire month of January, <laughs> I somehow got Lyme disease and I... There was some lone Lyme, Lyme tick I, on a yeah, ginkgo tree like somewhere. I hugged someone who had a tick or something. I don't know what it was, but it was horrible. And I was so exhausted all the time. And just, I really hit a breaking point just going to this job I hated, like just so exhausted every day. And I was afraid to tell my boss that I was dealing with Lyme disease and on heavy antibiotics. So I just didn't. And I truly just woke up one day and thought like, okay, I'm done. Like, I'm done. I'm going to hand in my notice tomorrow. And this is the thing I'm going to do now because that's the only thing that in my mind I feel like I can do. Wow. Is open a pencil shop. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. So how does this crazy, gutsy decision turn out for Caroline? That's after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Well, how did she grow? As far as any sort of like business strategy, I didn't even think about it, to be honest. I just kind of had this attitude like, okay, I'm going to build it and like, hopefully they'll come. They might not, but if they don't, then I learned my lesson and I'll find another job. But I was also so young and just really came from this perspective of just being really naive and just like so excited about doing this thing that it didn't even matter. If you failed. No, it really didn't. So, knowing full well the odds are against her, Caroline goes for it anyway. She might not have the math on her side, but she had faith in her vision, and she sure had a lot of guts to make up the difference. So you decide one morning, screw it, I'm doing it, Mm -hmm. even though I know it's a bad idea. What are the next steps? I did it as carefully as I could and learned as much as I could about the things like how to build a website, how to deal with shipping, like what what to charge for things, how to set it up online, how to deal with the accounting, how to like register a business with the state of New York and pay taxes, like that stuff. I studied and I learned and I figured out how to do it all on my own. I mean, I knew that it was crazy to like sign a lease and move into a physical shop right away. So I worked on building the website first, acquiring inventory. I started reaching out to all the brands that I wanted to sell. And how many people? So I know in the United States, I mean, there used to be hundreds, thousands maybe of pencil manufacturers, uh, you know, and now there's a very small number. Three. Three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there's, I mean, I think of Germany and Japan as having like real art artistic and high-end pencils, but I -hmm. I think the vast majority just come out of, like, these huge factories in China, right? Yeah, that's true, but there are also dozens of smaller family-owned companies similar to Generals in Jersey City that, like, really only sell to their home market, and no one knows about them. Around the world? Yeah, like, for example, there's one, and there's a pencil company in Pakistan that's family-owned. You can't buy their pencils, like, outside, pretty much not even outside of Pakistan, maybe in other parts of the Middle East, but they, yeah, they just really only exist there and you can't buy them online and just people don't know about it. And so there are a lot of them like that, that people just don't know about, which is why I guess 
at the very root of it, why I wanted to have a shop like this, because I wanted to show people, like, look at all these options that you didn't even know existed that are definitely better than the garbage you buy at Staples. All right. So how so you've decided to open the store. Now you need inventory. How are you figuring out who you're going to buy from, what you're going to buy? I kept it pretty safe to begin with. I mostly stuck with companies that I like knew and felt comfortable contacting. Most of them were a little confused. They didn't understand what I was doing, but they were willing to sell to me. So I just started buying like basically just the minimums that I was allowed to buy. And what is the minimum when you're um, buying? It depends wholesale. on the company. Sometimes it's usually like a gross, which is 144 pencils, 12 dozen. That's usually what it is. And um, did you have savings that you saved? Yeah, out? I did. So I just, with my own money, just bought pencils and literally just put them in the closets of my apartment. I just wow. filled my closets with so pencils. So like every few days the UPS guy shows up and you've got another gross uh-huh. of pencils? Yep. That must be exciting to open up a... Oh, it felt like Christmas every day. It was so fun. And I, yeah, that winter I went away for Christmas. And while I was away, this company I work with in India, they make you buy so many pencils at a time. And I was away and this package came unexpectedly. Well, actually seven packages, these massive boxes of pencils from India and they didn't have room in my building to put them. So the maintenance guy had to like break into my apartment while I was away to like (laughs) just put all the boxes in there because it was so many, but. Like um, thousands of pencils. Oh, tens of thousands of pencils. So many pencils. But yeah, it was really fun. I just collected things and I just did research and found places where I could and people I could just buy like huge lots of vintage pencils from to sort through because that's another thing that I wanted to sell was vintage pencils that have histories or are designed a certain way. And so I just acquired things and started like learning about how to photograph products and did my research there and photographed everything in this little setup that I made on my kitchen table. I just did everything very slowly, step by step, learning as I went and eventually about Four or five months later, I had a website with enough product on it that was organized enough that I was ready to put it online. And how do you get the word out? I didn't tell anyone. I just kind of did it. And part of that, I think, was because I was afraid to tell people about it. I was really self-conscious about it. And I I knew that most of the people, the few people I had told I was doing this, thought it was a crazy idea and were, like, being supportive. But you can tell when they're kind of like, okay, but are you sure? And... I was getting a lot of that. And so I just kind of did it. And there's a podcast called The Erasable Podcast. That is a podcast entirely about pencils. And they have a really intense online Facebook community. And one of the vendors I had purchased from was in that community. And he told them about my website. And so less than a month after I put the website online... I had found, had mostly customers who were just searching specific things and found me. I had been making sales. But then when this group of like pencil people found out they like lost their minds and they were all confused because they were like well why don't how do how do we not know her because we've never heard of this person before and she's selling all these things like where did she come from and they started buying things online and it just um, gave me the confidence I needed to understand like okay well maybe this can be a thing maybe this is a thing already and and when you're doing the online are you doing everything like you get an email or a message that someone wants to buy something and then you're packaging it, you're mm-hmm. bringing it to the post office. Yeah, at first I was doing it entirely from my apartment. So I was the one who was like going in the the POS system. We've always used Shopify. So logging into Shopify every morning and seeing what orders I had, I'd fulfill them, pack them up, walk them over to the post office. I just did it all myself because, I mean, at that point, that was my full-time job. Wow. Yeah. And were you profitable in that first, before the retail shop opened? I mean, I wasn't making money, but I was breaking even. So that was that was enough 
for me at that time. I'd planned for that. I kind of thought like, okay, like kind of gave myself like a year. I thought like I have a year to just like break even or maybe lose a little money and then I'm in trouble. All right. But the retail outlet, this is a whole nother level because yes. like you, you need more inventory and you need uh, and you'll have a lease. So now it's not just I could lose a little money. It's I could really be on the hook. Yes. In a bad way. Uh-huh. And I mean, having a physical store was kind of like end game dream goal for me. So it was a thing I took very seriously. And I started just kind of putting my feelers out to see what was available. I'd done a lot of research on what commercial real estate should cost in New York City and also how the lease structures are and what terms I would need in order to feel safe in that lease. And I just happened upon one day that I guess November, I happened upon a space on the Lower East Side that was tiny, like so small. It was it was about 200 square feet. And the rent was $1,900. Wow, which is unimaginable for Manhattan. It was a good deal. And they were willing to... Even for a tiny... Yeah. (laughs) And they were willing to give me three months free rent to build out my shop. And it just felt right. It was one of those situations where I just like really had a strong gut instinct about it. And I trusted it. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, so I signed a lease and started realizing this imagined shop that I had designed in my head for so many years. And are you like putting up the shelves and painting? Uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. I hired a contractor to do the things that I like really couldn't do, like replacing the floor and doing the electrical work. But besides that, like I had a big floor to ceiling, red velvet curtain across the back of the shop. I stood on top of a file cabinet and screwed that track into the ceiling myself just alone I hung everything I did this I did the shelves I did yeah I found a guy on Etsy to make furniture for me it was very much just a one really big DIY project wow how long did it take Mm. I signed the lease in November and we opened in March so it took a long time honestly because I had ordered custom furniture from a guy on Etsy and that (laughs) took way longer than it was supposed to I truly the day the furniture came I stayed up all night organizing the shop I came back the next morning and opened, and that just ended up being opening day. Wow. So um, tell me about opening day, your lifelong dream of yeah, opening a little pencil shop. I guess shop. I had told my friends about it, so I had several friend visitors. I had no employees at the time. My best friend was unemployed at that time, so she was working on Sundays just so I could have a day off. I was just alone in my shop, and several people just off the street walked in and were really confused because they didn't know that this was happening. I just literally just like showed up one day. And I mean, this type of street that I was on was definitely the kind of street where you would not expect something like that. Like you'd be walking down and find something like my shop and be surprised, which was what I wanted because I knew that even if I could afford to be like in the West Village or in Williamsburg or in like these neighborhoods that are kind of associated with these kind of like twee novelty things, I really wanted it to be like this magical, tiny, tiny little pocket of a store that you just happen upon and you feel like you've discovered something. And I had several customers who came in and felt that way, which was validating for me. But it just kind of went on like that for a few weeks. I still, I didn't have a marketing budget, so I didn't put any money there. And then a, a girlfriend of a friend of mine wrote about the shop on her blog. And then somebody from Gothamist saw it and wrote about it on Gothamist. And then I got a little busy. And then I thought like, okay, I, like soon I might need to hire someone. So I hired someone part-time and 
not long after I hired her, somebody from the New York Times wrote an article about the shop. And that's when things really changed. And I realized that it was a real thing. Like the fantasy aspect of this was over. Then I had to buckle down and figure out what I was going to do. And this, by the way, is such a common thing I hear about in specifically passion economy stories. Like, I don't think it's an accident that passion economy businesses get a lot of press coverage because when you have an authentic passion, it's likely to be surprising, unusual, interesting, and you have a real story to tell. Like if this was just some gimmicky, you did some market research and realized there was a hole in the pencil retail market or something, you know, there wouldn't be a lot for the New York Times to hang their hat on. But when you have an authentic, genuine story, you'll get that kind of coverage and you'll reach those kinds of audiences. So you had your original inventory designed for what you imagine would be a fairly slow and gradual growth. And then suddenly you're in the Times, you're getting all these orders. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly my shelves are bare and I have no employees and I'm like crying on the phone to my mom because I feel like Literally. I did, literally, I was like, the day that that New York Times article came out, I locked my doors at like 10 o'clock because I had so many customers late and I was alone. You had Ca- too many customers. I had too many customers and I literally sold everything in my shop. And I That day? That day. Like there Seriously? was almost nothing left in my really? shop. And I didn't even realize it because I was just had my head down ringing people up all day and talking to people. And the store was so crowded, I couldn't even see the shelves. And literally then I, it was that packed. Yes. Yeah. And then everyone cleared out and I was on the floor with the lights off, like writing on a giant piece of paper, this like note about how I've had to close for a week to read group and re-buy inventory. And I called my mom crying and told her this. And my mom was like, Caroline, you can't do that. Like, you have a business now. You can't close because you're overwhelmed. Like, that's not how this works. And she was right. And I stayed up all night that night writing POs to send to all my vendors, telling them it's an emergency and I need the stock as fast as they can send it. And it was fine. And it got to the point where we just needed more inventory than we could store. And in that beginning of that third year, we had a really terrible landlord issue and we were essentially forced out of the space that we were in but it came at a very good time because I was going to have to find a bigger space anyway in that very near future and I knew I wanted to stay in the neighborhood also so I found a much bigger shop on Orchard Street between Canal and Hester. Coming up, what does a $5 pencil tell us about how our economy works now? That's after the break. In the dawn of the digital age, I mean, like in the 90s, it was common to hear people talk about, oh, cities aren't going to matter anymore because everyone can telecommute and people are going to move out to where houses are cheaper and they can just do all their work remotely. And what we've seen, obviously, in New York and San Francisco and L.A., Miami, is cities are becoming more crowded, more expensive, more high value. And... Some of the economic thinking behind that is in a an economy that's switching to more intellectual output, cultural output, or computer programming or other things, the value of random interaction, the value of being able to have a large enough population that you can have subspecialties within it is so much higher. And similarly, having like really specialized retailers or other service providers that can support that. So you probably couldn't have a physical store back in your hometown. Oh, There's or, no. or even in maybe Chicago, possibly, or, or like Louisville or another city that just isn't big enough. Like, you know, a, an urban area with 18, 20 million people might just be 
the only place that has enough people that some tiny percentage of them really care about pencils. Yeah, I don't think it could exist anywhere else. Now, the other obvious place is cyberspace. Like, yes. So why didn't you just do a web store? Why a physical store? Well, I think for me, because a lot of my personal fantasy about having a shop involved, like being, being able to create my own like dream space, like that was really just a crucial part of it, that I wanted to have a physical space where people could come and feel a certain way in my space. And is there... A economic argument as well that the physical shop is not just an emotional benefit, but a economic benefit too for the business. I wonder. What do you think? I think, uh, yeah. I mean, in the physical shop, like very few people come in and don't buy anything. Even people who didn't think they were going to come in to buy something, they always buy something. And that's something that like not everybody who visits my website buys something, that's for sure. And it's so important to me to price everything competitively and fairly, even if that's often not the right business decision, just because I don't want to alienate my customers and because I don't want them to feel like we're like... I guess, glorifying an object that really is just supposed to cost 30 cents. But yeah, the physical store makes a huge difference because you can, it's a tactile object. You can come in and you can feel it. You can try it. You can look at it. You can talk to a human about it. It's a completely different thing. And so much of your story fits into my kind of grand theory of the passion economy. If you think of sort of pre-modern, pre-industrial, most products were steeped in rich context simply because they were produced at home or they were produced by a local craftsperson. And then you have mass industrialization, 20th century, where things that aren't exactly right for anybody but are good enough for almost everybody are just shipped all over the world and and there's kind of a, a sameness. And I really like thinking a lot about what I'm writing with. I like the paper. I like the pencil. I like the pen. I like having thoughts about it. But I kind of get to, like all of us, I get to take advantage of the big scale anonymous stuff to lower my the cost of consumption. But then I could invest a bit in a pencil. I mean, it's like if I went nuts and spent five bucks on a pencil, you know, I'm still <laughs> not spending that much money. Yeah. But I need someone like you and having those intermediaries, having those kind of gatekeepers, translators, storytellers is such a key part of that. It's a really nice model, I think. And I think it's going to be more. I think we're going to have more of people like you, I hope. What do you think? I hope so, too. I love learning about objects. And so I am totally the target demographic when it comes to like any object in any segment of my life that comes with a story or is like made a certain way or made sustainably. And so I get that. And that's Really, I think my favorite part about my shop is that anybody who's walking down the street can come in and buy something. There are things that cost 30 cents and there are things that cost $500. It's There's something for everybody and it doesn't matter what you're buying. You come in and you get the same experience. And I really hope that more shops will start having a different attitude about that or that more people will start opening shops about objects that they care about because I think the further away from that that we get as far as like mass-produced commodities go, the more people kind of crave this sort of thing. And they want that because it's such a rare thing and it's almost such a novel thing that they, yeah, they crave it. Caroline is getting at one of the themes that we talk about a lot on this show. With the shift in our economy towards mass production, globalization, huge scale, there's all sorts of jobs that have gone away. And for a lot of people, that has been devastating. 
But those exact same forces that have caused so much pain also create an opportunity. Because the very fact that so many of our products are anonymous, mass-produced commodities makes many of us want to have products that have a deeper, more intimate story, something special about them. And that is what Caroline provides her customers. She takes a product as mundane as the pencil and imbues it with a narrative and provides an intimate shopping experience that I think a lot of us crave. When a customer comes to CW Pencil, Caroline can use her vast knowledge to fit them with an implement suited to their particular needs or tell them an anecdote that makes that pencil feel unique and worth paying a bit more for. And trust me, I know this because Caroline brought some pencils to the studio and worked this magic on me. We've been developing a lot of our own products. And actually, this week, I'm starting a wholesale program to wholesale some of these to other shops. Oh, really? Which is exciting. That's a big, like, growth step for us. But this one especially, I'm really proud of. General Pencil Company actually made this pencil for us. Um, I designed it with them. It is a pencil made specifically for scoring baseball. (laughs) That's awesome. CW Pencils Baseball Scoring. Yeah. That must be exciting to see CW Pencils actually etched into a pencil. Oh, yeah. It's thrilling. I love it. It never gets old. Yeah. yeah, this one here is a vintage 1960s Eberhard Faber Blackwing 602. Wow. And those we so sell, this was made in the 1960s. That was made in the 1960s. Wow. Those sell for $75 a piece. Oh, really? And this pe- is 75 bucks. People buy them. I sold one just this morning. Wow, yeah, just for a, this one pencil. Yeah, it's a really important collector's pencil that is becoming increasingly hard to find because the type of people who hoarded them when they went out of business actually used them all up. So, Oh, really? Yeah, Half the a, pressure, twice the speed. So this a, would have been a penny or something when it was made. Oh, yeah. They were introduced during the Great Depression and made through the 1980s. And it was a favorite of John Steinbeck. He wrote most of his books in that pencil, which is what it's most known uh, for. A Blackwing 602. Is yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. It's That's a very, very iconic beautiful. vintage pencil. I feel like afraid to hold it. Yeah. Oh, no. You're going to sharpen it and use it. Well, you can't give me a $75 pencil. Sure I can. <laughs> this one is made out of recycled tea leaves, coffee wow, grounds, and flower petals. It's made in, by a company in Croatia. And wow, they travel... By bike or by foot to collect all of the materials it takes to make it. Wow. Um, it's definitely probably the most eco-friendly pencil that exists. But it um, writes well. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah. It's a harder lead, but it has a, I think it's a gooseberry seed in the end, so you can plant it when you're done with it. Oh, really? And it grows a plant. Yeah, it really? comes with this, like, funny worksheet of, like, eco-activities that you can do. Oh, that's awesome. I yeah. love that. But there, yeah. there are a lot of wacky pencils that are just for fun or just just for the sake of the story that comes with it. But there are so many that are just really also highly functional and serve purposes that one would not even imagine a pencil is used for. That's awesome. And then what about like just highly technical, like for an artist who does, you know, who needs a fairly precise, uh, do you sell that as well? We do. Yeah, we sell mostly things like in the range of writing grade, but anything really specific we also sell because we get, I mean, even my staff, they have to know everything about this stuff because you never know who's going to walk in the door with a really specific question or need. One of our biggest demographics of customer is orchestra librarians and musicians, but specifically orchestra librarians because they have such specific requirements and they use pencils all day, every day in their jobs. So they work like at the symphony and they... Yeah, like every symphony orchestra in the world will have a department of orchestra librarians and they have to mark up music and it has to be dark, it has to be smooth, it has to be very erasable is 
really the key thing. It also has to be like not super reflective, especially if for musicians who are performing on stage, it can't be reflective if they're writing on their sheet music that they're using on stage because they can't see it under stage lights. There's so many little things. And so we're constantly like diagnosing pencil problems and suggesting alternatives for people who just feel like they can't find what they're looking for. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, or like pencil doctors sometimes. Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah. Cool. And what's that Japanese one? Oh, this is one of the Japanese Kohitsu Shosha pencils. It comes in this box that kind of looks like it's like an eyeliner pencil or something. And this pencil is a 10B. So this is the softest pencil that exists. A 10B is... 10 grades softer than a number two. At that point, it's basically like entirely graphite. It feels like you're writing with butter, but because it's this pencil that's made for practicing Chinese calligraphy, it is like remarkably strong for being such a soft pencil. It's really unique. And that one, especially like we have customers who have arthritis problems with their hands or they're like partially paralyzed and they can't apply a lot of pressure. And so even like as a writing pencil, those are used by several of our customers. So it even has like a function beyond its intended use. That's awesome. And so how do you train your employees? Like if I came to work for you, how would I learn all this stuff about pencils? I like to be in the shop with them for quite a while before I let them be on their own just so that they can hear me repeating stories to customers because a lot of it's knowledge and facts and like about uses and histories but a lot of it's just anecdotes when it comes to like the history and like the things that make this stuff like truly just charming and fun to learn about and I also I wrote a book about the history of the pencil that's very anecdotal that and so book? that's this book and so wow. I I have them read this book I, when I hire anyone I give them a copy of my own book and basically tell them like in your free time please read section by section because pretty much everything that I talk about in the shop is in this book. Really, my job is probably 50% storyteller. And when I'm in the shop telling a single customer a story, the other customers will always eavesdrop and they'll always want to buy that same thing because they heard me repeat that story. And then they'll go and tell their friend and their friend will come in the next day and tell me that their friend told them about this thing that we have and then they just keep repeating these stories and yeah it's a completely infectious thing and I love it it's really the best part getting to tell the stories and share them with other people and have them passed on The Passion Economy is a three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson. This episode was produced by our fabulous intern, Hana Tatsutani, with help from Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. If you want to learn more about the theories in this podcast, check out my book, aptly named The Passion Economy. 